If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to John chapter 15. We're going to read a few verses from John 15 shortly. Beginning of a new year, we're beginning a new sermon series. Sermon series is the Holy Spirit. We're going to spend 11 weeks talking about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does in our lives. And I want to begin this morning with a quote that may initially seem like an odd place to begin a sermon series on the Holy Spirit. I want to begin with a quote from C.S. Lewis from 1941, the release of his book called The Screwtape Letters. And at the beginning of that book, Lewis says something interesting about a group of beings that he calls the devils. And when he talks about the devils, he's talking about Satan and demons. And so Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's talking about Satan and demons, and he says there's two errors we might fall into. We might, on the one hand, pretend like demons are not real and just ignore them, not talk about them, not acknowledge them, or we might obsess over them. And as Lewis goes on in this introduction to the book, he says the demons themselves hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. They don't care if you think they don't exist, and they don't care if you obsess over them. They are happy with either error. And I think what Lewis said in 1941 as a warning has played out in our culture, at least in the United States of America. I think there are places, churches, groups, denominations who functionally ignore spiritual beings like demons and Satan. And there are other groups, churches, denominations, places you can go, where Christians completely obsess over Satan and demons and the devils and all of these spiritual beings. I share that quote with you to say, I think in our context in the United States of America, we have fallen into the same two errors when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I think there are places you can go, churches you can attend, denominations you can be a part of where the Holy Spirit is functionally absent and ignored and nobody really knows what to say about Him. And I think there are many places, many, many places you can go, churches, groups, denominations, where the Holy Spirit is obsessed over in an unbalanced, unhealthy, unbiblical way. We want to avoid both of those errors in our church, and we want to try to think biblically about the Holy Spirit. But I just want to make the point to you, the brief observation, that when a a church is confused in one of these two extreme ways about the Holy Spirit, it's rooted in confusion about God's Word and confusion about God's character. And for what it's worth, that is Satan's M.O. from the beginning. He wants to confuse the people of God about the Word of God, and he wants to confuse the people of God about the character of God. He wants you to misunderstand or wrongly interpret the Bible, and he wants you to be confused about God's nature, his character, his attributes, who he is and what he's like. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. In the garden, when the serpent approached Adam and Eve, his first question was a question sowing doubt and confusion about God's Word. He approached the woman and he said, Did God 
really say? Now, he's not asking Eve to open up to chapter and verse in a written copy of the Scriptures, but he's sowing confusion about God's Word. And he goes on and he says, look, you're not going to die. You understand, when he tells the woman and the man that they won't die, he's saying that God is a liar for telling you that you will die. He's slandering God's character. And he says, look, God knows that when you eat of this, you're going to be like him. Implying that they weren't already like him created in his image. And implying that God was selfishly, wrongly holding something back from them. This is just basic spiritual warfare 101. Forget all the theatrics of Hollywood and understand what the enemy wants in your life is for you to be confused about God's word and about God's character. You can trace this all the way through the history of the people of God. I'll just give you a few examples. These are on your notes. Old Testament Israel. I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, but I think it's fair to say that when you come all the way from Abraham up through Malachi, there is an awful lot of confusion about what God actually said and didn't say and who God is and who he's not. And the people are constantly wrestling with, is, is Yahweh just one of these other gods like all the other nations worship, or is he different? Is he distinct? Is he unique? There's confusion about these things. What about in the early church, just the few first centuries of the early church? If you go back and look at church history in this era, there is intense and great debate about who Jesus is and how we're going to speak biblically about the doctrine of the Trinity. And they have to have meetings, and then people make up some more stuff, so they have other meetings, and then people sort of twist off in a new direction, and they have other meetings, and they're constantly, they're not inventing anything new, but they're constantly saying, no, 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 not that, no, 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 not that, and they're trying to walk a biblical path in speaking about Jesus, and what the Bible says about Jesus, and the doctrine of the Trinity, and what the Bible says about the doctrine of the Trinity. What about the, the era leading up to the Protestant Reformation? Incredible confusion about how the triune God acts to save sinners. And all of that confusion is rooted in confusion about what the Bible actually says because all of this stuff that the church had been saying had been added alongside the Bible. There was a lot of confusion about what did the church say or the Bible or where does it contradict, where does it line up. There's confusion about the character of God and how he works to save sinners. What about the modern era? I think I could point to multiple instances of confusion about God's word and God's character. But just with respect to the Holy Spirit, go back historically to something that church historians call the Azusa Street Revival in the early 1900s and move forward from that point and look at how the church in general has been greatly confused about who the Holy Spirit is and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. And all of that confusion is rooted in people taking an experience and setting alongside the Bible and saying, my experience is equally, if not more authoritative than the Word of God. And there's incredible confusion about who the Holy Spirit is and how He works in our lives. So in this series, our aim is to think biblically, to think rightly about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit 
and what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And our goal is not, is not to say, well, I've always assumed that the Holy Spirit was like this or he did these things and then go to the Bible and look for proof to support our views and our ideas. Rather, our goal is to allow the Bible to shape our views and our ideas and what we think about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to spend 11 weeks talking about the Holy Spirit. This morning we're going to talk about the idea that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. And then the things that we're going to talk about in the weeks to come, I'll throw these up on the screen so that you can see where we're headed. We're going to talk about the Spirit inspiring the Scriptures. You noticed of all the things we're talking about, that one is past tense. Everything else is present tense. That one is past tense. Inspired Scripture, He convicts us of sin, He regenerates us, He seals us, He fills us, He glorifies Jesus, He gifts believers, He grows believers, He intercedes for believers, and He transforms us into the image of Christ. Those are things that the Bible says about who the Holy Spirit is and how He works in our lives. So this morning we're talking about the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father. So just start with the basic definition of the word proceed. The word proceed means to begin or to continue a course of action. And wrapped up in this word is the idea of movement, action or movement. So if you are a fan of the greatest Western ever made, Tombstone, you may remember there's a scene in the middle of the movie where Doc Holliday has his second run-in with Johnny Ringo out on the streets, and it's the famous part where he says, I'm your Huckleberry. And then when he's done, he goes back to the porch of the barber shop, and he sits down, and he says, Barber, proceed, sir. Not precede, as in something that comes before, but continue what you were doing. There's an action to be taken. There's movement that's happening. That's the idea of this word to proceed. Now, our text is John chapter 15, and we're going to read just two short verses in thinking about the Holy Spirit. Before we read them, I want to explain to you a little bit of context in John chapter 15. In the gospel of John, it's a gospel of the life of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. In the gospel of John, John 13 to John 17 is one story. It's one really long story. It all takes place in the exact same room, area, conversation. The same people are involved. In John 13, it's the famous story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And then at the back end of that, John 17, is Jesus' high priestly prayer where he prays for the disciples and he actually prayed for you if you are a follower of Jesus. He prayed for you in John chapter 17. In the middle, John 14, 15, 16 we read something called the Farewell Discourse or the Upper Room Discourse. And it's given those names because Jesus was in an upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he was saying farewell. This was the night before he was crucified, the night before Jesus died on the cross in the place of sinners. And he's talking to his disciples, and he's preparing them for his departure. Right in the middle, John 15, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, I am the vine, you're the branches. He's the vine, we're the branches. And he explains, how is it that the branches connect to the vine? It's by abiding in Jesus, believing the truth about Jesus. 
having a genuine relationship with Jesus. He talks about in John 15 that if you are a branch connected to the vine, the world will hate you, the branch, just like it hated the vine. He just prepares his disciples. It's not all going to be easy. There's things that are going to be really, really hard when I'm gone. They hated me, and if you're connected to me, they're going to hate you. But then he says to them, you're not going to be alone in enduring this hatred from the world. I'm going to send somebody to help you. I'm going to send a helper. And that's where we pick up in John chapter 15. So take your copy of the scriptures. Let's read these verses. And then we'll ask God to bless the reading of his word. John 15 verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Father, this morning, we're thankful that in the fullness of time, you sent your only begotten Son into this world to save sinners. Father, we're thankful that uh, at the right time, you sent the Helper, uh, the Spirit of Truth. And we pray this morning and in the weeks ahead that the Spirit of Truth would help us to see truth in the very words that He inspired. Help us to see truth about who the Spirit is and how He might work in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So our question is simple. The question this morning is, what does John 15, 26, and 27 teach us about the Holy Spirit? I have four truths for you. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first two. So if we move late into the service and we still have half of the major points to go, don't panic. I fully intend to get you to Sunday school in short order. Truth number one. From this passage, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And I just want you to notice in the two verses we just read, let's call it the Trinitarian shape of these verses. They're fully forming a, a doctrine of the Trinity takes more than John 15. We have to pull all of God's Word into concert. But John 15 is certainly a Trinitarian passage. It's God the Son speaking, Jesus. Jesus is speaking to His disciples, God the Son. And He's speaking about a helper who He identifies as the Spirit of truth. So God the Son is talking about God the Holy Spirit, and he says he's going to send God the Holy Spirit, and he says this Spirit, this Helper, the Spirit of truth, he proceeds from the Father. So I'm going to send him from the Father. God the Son speaking. God the Spirit is going to be sent, and God the Father is acknowledged in this inner Trinitarian discussion, Son, Spirit, and Father. It is a Trinitarian passage. So we could look at many other texts that would help us form a doctrine of the Trinity, but this is one text. This is a Trinitarian passage where you see all three members of the Trinity at work. Now, when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, and this whole series is unavoidably Trinitarian as we speak about the Holy Spirit, when it comes to the Trinity, we have to be very careful how we speak. 
And my observation is that most churches and most Christians are not very careful when they speak about the Trinity. And I think that's a tragic mistake. We have to be very careful in how we speak about the Trinity. And we are not at liberty to sort of freestyle invent ideas about the Trinity to help us or other people understand it. So I'll give you a few examples that you have probably heard, and maybe you've shared these. I've shared these with people at the past, and I feel horrible about it. But sometimes people say, you know, the Trinity is kind of like an egg. There's the shell and the yolk and the white. It's nothing like an egg. It's not like, God is not like an egg. Don't tell people God's like an egg. Some people say, well, it's kind of like water. Water can be liquid, or it can be solid, or it can be vapor. So there's three, and it's one thing. Listen, God is not like water. Leave that to Bruce Lee. All of your water, imagine water. Bruce can have that. The God of the Bible is not like water. People say, well, maybe it's like a a three-leaf clover, and there's one clover and there's three. It's not like that. Maybe it's like a man who is a husband and a father and a son all at the same time. Not helpful. We often try to take something that is admittedly very hard to think about and boil it down to the level that our finite brains can process it, and in doing so, we change the truth about who God is. So let's just acknowledge two things as we're talking about the Trinity. Number one, we are creatures, meaning we are finite. Our small little computers up in our head are not capable of taking in all that God is comprehensively. And we should not expect that that would ever happen. He is infinite, and He's the Creator, and we are finite, and we are the creature. So we need to begin with a position of humility. But we also need to have confidence in our humility because God actually has spoken to us in the Bible. And we're going to talk more about that next week, the Holy Spirit inspiring the Scriptures. But God has actually spoken to us. And just because we are creatures and we're finite doesn't mean we throw our hands in the air and say, well, we can't know anything about God. Everybody's just guessing. Who really knows? No one has a chance at figuring this out. No, God has spoken to us in His Word. And He's spoken to us kindly in a way that we can understand it and we can make sense of truth. And so our job is not to understand everything about the infinite nature of God, but is to understand rightly and truly what God says about himself, especially when it comes to the Trinity. So I'm just going to lay out a few basic ideas for you as you try to think about this doctrine of the Trinity and what the Bible says about God. Okay, very simple stuff. Are you ready? The Bible says that there is only one God. There's only one God. The Bible also says that the Father is God, And the Bible says that the Son is God. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit is God. How many gods are there? One. And guess what? He's not like water or eggs or clovers or us. There's only one God. And as we read the Bible, we see, well, the Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God. And the way that the church has articulated this throughout history is very simple. God is one in essence and three in person. He's one in essence, and three in person. And we could say more about that, 
but we can't say less. The one God, one in essence, and he's three in person. So on your notes, I gave you a little uh, diagram or a shield. This is not a picture of God. You understand that? I did not put on your notes a picture of God. This is what he looks like if you could see him. This is a conceptual framework to help you and me try to make sense of some of these truths. There is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And on the outside of that shield or that diagram is something very important. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. And the Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son. There's one God... He's one in essence, and from eternity, he has existed as three persons. Is your brain hurting yet? It's supposed to hurt. That's what happens when a finite brain tries to think about the infinite, almighty creator God. I had this conversation just the other day in our car about God's birthday. When was it? It wasn't. One of the kids in my car said, I don't really understand that. And I said, I don't think you're supposed to. You're just supposed to believe it. You had a birthday. I had a birthday. God didn't have a birthday. He's infinite. He's eternal. He's also triune. One God, one in essence, three in persons. Now, two more words we can add to this diagram. You might want to write these uh, on your notes if you're taking notes. The first is the word begotten. The way the Bible speaks about the relationship between the Father and the Son is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. He was not born. He was not created. He was not made. But the Bible word is that He was begotten. He is eternally begotten of the Father. And what we just read in John 15 gives us a, a second word, a word that describes the relationship between the Father and the Spirit, and that word is proceeds. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as eternally proceeding from the Father. Didn't have a beginning. There wasn't a point where there was just one God and then he split into a trinity. These are things that are eternally true of God. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. These words help us understand who God is in and of himself, and they help us understand how God has acted to save us. Maybe at some point in your life you've wondered the way things all played out in salvation. Could it have been that the Father would have been born of the Virgin? Or could it have been born that the Holy Spirit would have sent the Father? And the answer to those questions is no. Because the way the Holy Spirit has acted to save us is rooted in who the triune God is and has always been from eternity. So the Father, who has eternally begotten a Son, sent His Son to be born of a virgin. And at the right time, the Son sent the Spirit who proceeds from the Father to be with His people. These truths about how God has acted to save us, all the things we're about to talk about over the next 10 weeks are rooted in who God is as His person. So notice what we've said so far. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's not an it. It's not a force. It's not your stomach growling. It's not 
some weird hunch or feeling. It's not goosebumps. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person. He's a third person of the Trinity. And we're also saying, just for the sake of clarity, that the Holy Spirit is truly God. When you think about these persons in the Trinity, you can't say the Father is the most God and then the Son is pretty much God and then the Holy Spirit, well, I guess He's a little bit God, like there's a ranking order or a pecking order. That's not biblical Trinitarian thought. The Holy Spirit is truly God. And if you just look at these verses, we're not going to look these up. Can we just walk through them quickly, thinking about how the Bible speaks about the true and full deity of the Holy Spirit? Isaiah 63, it says that holiness belongs only to the one true God. And the Holy Spirit is truly God. He's truly holy. Not just a little bit holy, but He is the fullness of God's holiness. What about Genesis 1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did He do it? He did it by speaking with words. And as He did it, by speaking with words through the Son, the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters in the beginning bringing life out of nothing and bringing to completion God's work. He's involved in creation. Psalm 51, the psalmist prays about God's presence. He doesn't want to lose God's presence. And the way he describes that is losing the Holy Spirit. Don't take your spirit from me. Acts chapter 28 and Acts 5, the things that the Holy Spirit says are things that God says, and the things that you say to the Holy Spirit are things that you say to God. You can trace these out on your own. 1 Corinthians 1, the Holy Spirit is omniscient. Psalm 139, He's omnipresent. Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit was involved in the miracle of the incarnation, creating life in Mary's womb. Matthew 12, notice when people are doubting Jesus, Jesus says, you might be guilty of blasphemy of the Son. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy is something we associate with God. We can debate what that sin is or what it was in that context, but blasphemy is something that takes place in our relationship with God. Romans 8, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. Matthew 28, we're going to have a baptism in our second service. It will be performed in the name. Not names. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That formula is taken straight from Matthew 28. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says the church is the temple of God because the Holy Spirit lives in us. That's his presence. He's truly God. He's the third person in the Trinity. Now, let me just call a timeout. We've said a lot. And I have a hunch, I have a suspicion that some of you are thinking, what a ridiculous way to begin a new year. Does a preacher not know that I just made New Year's resolutions and that I need three tips to a better life in 2024? Or I need four ways to have a better this in 2024. Here we are, we're talking about these numbers and the Trinity and some kind of God-ordained math that I don't understand, and he says I should understand it, but I shouldn't understand it, and I don't understand why this is relevant for anything. Couldn't we at least start off by talking about something the Holy Spirit's actually going to do in my life instead of this long discussion of who he is as a third person in the Trinity and truly God? And the answer to all those questions is, no, we can't do any of those things. And yes, we should be starting exactly here as we're thinking about the Holy Spirit. Listen to what R.A. Torrey said. 
a frequent source of error and fanaticism about the work of the Holy Spirit is the attempt to study and understand His work without first of all coming to know Him as a person. You understand the great danger in a sermon series on the Holy Spirit is that we put ourselves at the center of it instead of Him. We put ourselves at the center and say, okay, Holy Spirit, what can you do for me? Number one, number two, number three, number four. And we list off all these things, but at the center of it is us because we want to know what's in it for us. And Tori's right. If you don't start off acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is a person and thinking biblically about Him, you will go off in all sorts of erroneous directions in thinking about the Spirit and talking about the Spirit. So we're going to talk about, in weeks to come, what the Holy Spirit does. We have to start with who He is. Who He is. He's a third person of the Trinity. He's truly God. He eternally proceeds from the Father. He's the helper. He's the spirit of truth. He's the one who's come to bear witness about Jesus. Look, this is really important. There's been previous years where we have started off the year talking about the character of God. We've started off in January, February doing sermon series about God's attributes because we want to know who He is. You understand, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, beyond the benefits and the perks for us, most basically and most fundamentally, we want to know Him. We want to know who He is. Our staff and our elders are reading a book. You may be interested in this book. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. We just started reading it. We're starting in uh, January. And early in that book, Packer explains that the fundamental reason that you exist as a person on this earth is to know God. And he makes a distinction in the book. He says, not just to know about Him, but to actually know Him. I watched a basketball game yesterday. I can tell you all sorts of things about the people who played in that game. I don't know any of them. I know about them, but I don't know them. When we're talking about the Holy Spirit of God, the aim is not just to be able to answer questions, but the aim is that you would know Him as a person. A.W. Tozer said, I always think about this quote when I think about the attributes and the character and the nature of God. He says, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. You understand in the Bible Belt, the vast majority of the people that you rub shoulders with would say to you, I believe in God. And many of them, when they say that, have ideas that flood their brain that do not line up with the Word of God. They're thoroughly confused about what God's Word says, and they're thoroughly confused about who God is. We have to know who He is. We want to understand what He does in our lives. One of the things that we dare not do, we dare not, is to take all of our preconceived ideas and things we've heard about the 
Holy Spirit, or things that we're not sure about in our lives and hunches and intuitions and feelings and emotions and just throw them all in a bucket labeled Holy Spirit. So, well, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. We have to listen to what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. Look, spoiler alert, next week, the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. It's true because the Holy Spirit inspired it. If you want to know the truth about the Holy Spirit, don't do a Google search. Open the Bible. That's where he's spoken about himself. If you want to know about him, you have to understand his word. Far too often, we don't listen to the Bible in trying to formulate our ideas about the Holy Spirit. I'll just give you two examples of this. 300 years ago, in Bavaria, it's Germany, there was a Franciscan nun named Maria Crescentia Haas. And she claimed that she had a vision of the Holy Spirit. And she told her superiors at the, the convent, the the abbey, whatever, she told them about this vision that she had, and she said, oh, yeah, I saw the Holy Spirit. I know exactly what he looks like. He's young. It's always good to be young. He's got long, curly hair. Some of us wish we had long, curly hair. And he's got fire around him, and she went on and on with all this description. And her superiors got so excited, they sent a painter to paint her vision. And they started sending this painting around, and The painting turned into sculptures, it turned into statues, and just things spread initially like wildfire. All of these people thinking that the Holy Spirit must look exactly like this because someone said they had a vision and saw the Holy Spirit. She's not quoting any Bible verses. She's not thinking biblically about it. She's just saying, this is what I had a vision of. Now, to his credit, the Pope at the time condemned these paintings and he condemned the statues and he condemned uh, all of it. He said it is unbiblical, misleading, impious, and are you ready for this? Silly. That's Pope Benedict XIV. He put a stop to it. He did his best to eradicate all of it. Fast forward 300 years. Not in Bavaria, other side of the world, United States of America. A novelist named William Paul Young wrote a book called The Shack, and in that book, he claimed to know what the Holy Spirit was like, looked like physically. And in the book, and I think there was a movie that followed maybe, the Holy Spirit is a young, it's always good to be young, Asian woman, and her name is Sarayu. Now, we're Protestants, we don't have a pope. But rather than condemning this stuff as unbiblical, impious, not helpful, misleading, and silly, Protestants, those are the ones who bought the book, Protestants made it a bestseller. Such a bestseller that it was then turned into some sort of film adaptation. Listen, we're not at liberty to dream up things about the Holy Spirit. And we need to be very careful about how we speak about the Holy Spirit to make sure we speak biblically about the Holy Spirit. I got news for you. We are surrounded in Odessa, Texas by people who hold to an unorthodox, unbiblical view of who the Holy Spirit is. I'm not trying to pick any fights. I'm not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. But I'm going to give you four examples 
of people that you will find in Odessa, Texas with an unbiblical, fundamentally wrong view of the Holy Spirit. Our Jehovah's Witness friends, it's an unbiblical view of the Holy Spirit. Our Latter-day Saint friends, Mormons, it's a completely unbiblical view of the Holy Spirit. Oneness Pentecostals, a large group in the United States of America, it's a fundamentally unorthodox view of God. Now, I told you I was going to give you four. That's three. You ready for the last one? Biblically illiterate evangelicals who read fiction books and assume that because they're talking about God that it's right or it's okay. We want to think rightly and biblically about who the Spirit is, and we're going to spend the next few weeks doing that. Two last truths, and I'm going to give you these quickly from John 15. I'm giving you these quickly, not because they're unimportant, but because we're going to talk about them more in the weeks ahead. Number three on your notes, the Holy Spirit is our helper. He's our helper. The Greek word is parakletos. It's a complicated word to translate. It basically means a person who is sent to come alongside of you to help you through something and to stay with you. That's a long definition. We don't have one English word to summarize all that, so we just use a sentence. Someone who comes, he's alongside you, he's with you, and he helps you and he stays with you. That's what the helper is. I just want to note this morning, in passing, that in a sister passage in the farewell discourse, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as another helper. Another helper. And John, who wrote this gospel in the book of 1 John, talks about Jesus as our helper. Jesus is the first helper that the Father sent to be with us, to live among us, to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us. Jesus is our helper. He's our advocate. And then Jesus sends Another helper, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father. The only Son begotten of the Father sends the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father to be our helper. And what the first helper, Jesus, accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, the second helper applies to our lives. Jesus accomplishes our salvation. That doesn't mean we're just magically Wave a wand and we're all Christians. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to apply the finished work of Jesus to our lives. That's part of what he does as the helper. So we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead. Last on your notes, the Holy Spirit tells the truth about Jesus. He tells the truth about Jesus. Now we're dipping into what he does, but it's part of our passage this morning. Let's just read it again. When the helper comes... Whom I will send to you from the Father. God the Son will send God the Spirit from God the Father. Jesus says he's the Spirit of truth. What the Spirit says is true. What does he say? Well, he proceeds from the Father and he bears witness about me, about Jesus. It's the work of the Holy Spirit to speak what is true, particularly what is true about Jesus. And Jesus says in verse 27, you also will bear witness. Well, when? When the helper comes. He will bear witness about me and you will bear witness about me. 
Holy Spirit tells the truth about Jesus. We'll just end abruptly with this thought. The most spirit-filled people that you will ever meet in your life are people who are the most focused on Jesus. And the people who say true things about Jesus. People who understand what the Spirit has testified about Jesus. So we're going to try to end in that manner. We're going to try to fix our eyes on the truth about Jesus and pray that the Spirit would help us even this morning. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your spirit. Father, we're thankful that your spirit has inspired a book that is true and that points us to Jesus. Father, there's things about you revealed in this book that are hard for us to understand, and that's no surprise to you. So we just pray for your help. Father, we want to be people who think rightly about you. We don't want to be inventive. We don't want to be creative. We don't want to be novel. We don't want to be new. We don't want to be unique. We just want to understand and believe what your word says and has said from the beginning. We want to be clear about your word and we want to be clear about your character. Before we rush off in this series to think about what the Holy Spirit does in our lives... We just stop to pray that we would know the truth about you, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And not just that we would know the truth, but that through this truth we would know you. Father, we pray for people who may be with us this morning. Maybe they need to be corrected in their thinking about who you are. Maybe they need to meet you and to know you and to have a genuine living relationship with you by putting their faith in Jesus, we pray that your spirit would be at work to that end this morning. Lord, as your spirit has been sent to bear witness about Jesus and to, uh, to share the truth about Jesus, we want to celebrate that truth this morning as we think about uh, our life and our hope and the salvation that's been provided through your son. So Lord, even this morning, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray these things in his name. Amen.